I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We'll be in Revelation 22 briefly, or momentarily. Uh, But Titus chapter 2, pastors are greatly tied to themes during certain times of the year, and rightfully so. And the theme, uh, of course, uh, entering December is always the coming of the Lord. Well, we find ourselves in the last section of Revelation 22. I love the book of Revelation, but I really don't want to be preaching it in January. I just have to tell you, uh, I'm looking forward to doing uh, some other. I do know there are other parts of Scripture, okay, besides this, and uh, we're going to explore some of those in the coming year, Lord willing. But I really do want to finish up uh, in, the, in the next couple of weeks, the end of Revelation. And what we will see in Revelation at the very end is this very striking theme that God's word is true, that Christ is coming, and he's coming quickly. This is an oft-repeated theme that we'll see in Revelation 22. And it, it, call it providence, but it, it reminds us so much of the way the believers in God in the Old Testament were yearning for Christ's coming the first time. I think there are some remarkable parallels here that sort of open up our understanding of what we're supposed to be doing right now as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we're going to begin this last section in Revelation 22. Earlier this year, there was an article that was written explaining that astronomers are watching the night skies, hoping to witness a supernova near to us in our galaxy. I'm guessing most of you know what a supernova is. Like in in layman's terms, a supernova is when a star runs out of fuel that it needs to produce its nuclear fusion, in other words, to keep the light on. And it causes, when it runs out of fuel, the whole star to sort of collapse in on itself. And it it packs into this incredible mass because of the gravitational pull. And all of a sudden, boom, the whole thing explodes. And when it explodes, it sends this brilliant, intense light across the galaxy. The supernova that astronomers talk about right now was discovered back when I was in college in 1987. Supernova 1987A. I'm not sure why... The A is there because I don't think there was a B. Maybe they were hoping there would be another one, okay? Uh, but it's 1987. And the supernova, uh, 1987A, was a pretty big deal at the time. And, and they say you can still find it in the night sky if you know where to look. But that supernova was too far away to light up our night sky. It merely added a pinpoint of light in the Milky Way galaxy from our perspective. In fact, I'll circle it for you there if you don't know where it is. There it is. Uh, That's uh, the supernova 1987A. And if you haven't noticed it before, that's probably why. It's just a little tiny prick of light to us. But what astronomers are preparing for now, and and, and they, they were talking about this this year, is a supernova, the explosion of a star that would take place very close to us. And if it happened, it would light up our sky. Right now, astronomers' instruments are created to be able to see these lights that are far away. So if a brilliant supernova suddenly blazed in the sky, the intensity would be overwhelming for the equipment. And they would have to look at it with other instruments. They actually said that these amateur astronomers 
uh, who have their homemade telescopes in the backyard would actually get most of the data because the other ones are, are geared up so high to, to detect the, the, the distant light. They wouldn't be able to, to handle this. So they're trying to figure out what to do about that. But they say that if the light reaches us from a supernova, it emits before the light comes these neutrinos, which are basically like dead subatomic particles, and they arrive ahead of time. And if they, if they know that those are coming, they know a supernova is about to show up. So apparently there are teams of astronomers always on the lookout. They're waiting. They're anticipating, trying to detect these neutrinos, hoping to witness the appearance of this brilliant supernova suddenly dawning upon our planet. If the light were to come tomorrow, it means that the supernova happened some time ago. But it takes a while for the light to arrive, illuminating the sky. An event like this, they believe, would be unprecedented in world history. But now you and I know that a much greater light, much greater than a supernova, already dawned upon the world. Matthew says that his coming fulfills the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Because Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has appeared. And his coming was not merely unprecedented in human history, but it became the fulcrum of human history. The point in time and space, which all salvation history looks forward to, and the point in which all salvation history looks back on. He entered the world of sin and darkness as the light of truth and righteousness and hope. This idea is precisely what Paul draws upon in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, which we're going to look at. Paul has been instructing Titus to preach the, to believers on the island of Crete to renounce the sinful behavior of their old life outside of Christ, the way of darkness, and to live in a way that is pleasing to God, to walk in light. But in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul explains the reason behind this life-altering change. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, literally in the now age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says that we can live holy, obedient, godly lives because God's grace has appeared. That is his favor toward us. Now, how can God's grace appear? Because grace is not some kind of substance that we can see. You know, if, if, you, if you're in need of grace today, you can't say, you know, do you have some extra you can give to me and I can hand it over to you? That's not the way grace works. Grace is an invisible thing. When Paul says that the grace of God appeared, he's talking about the fact that God's grace appeared in the form of a person, the Lord Jesus. 
It's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The grace of God became visible through Jesus Christ, who dawned upon the world like the light of a supernova to give himself for us to redeem us. But also notice verse 13. What does Paul say we are doing now? He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. When Paul says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, and then he says that we are waiting for his appearing in verse 13, he's using the verb form and the noun form of the same word. Epiphino is an intensive form of the Greek verb phino, which means to shine or appear forth. So you have phino, to appear and shine, and you have epiphino, which is an intensification of that verb. It means to shine suddenly, to shine brilliantly. It's where we get our English word epiphany. In English, an epiphany is a sudden realization, a light bulb moment. That's what an epiphany is when we apply it to discovery. It's like the light's coming on. We can finally see. It's from an intense Greek word that means this sudden, brilliant shining. And with only one exception, in the end of Acts, when Paul is sailing in the storm and he talks about the brilliant shining of the stars in the darkness that he's hoping to see. With one exception, this Greek word in the New Testament refers to one thing only. It always refers to the intense, brilliant coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, either in his first or second coming. And I'll tell you what all this means for those of us who know Jesus Christ. It means that you and I right now are waiting in between two epiphanies of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in between two appearances, two comings, two advents. It's a unique time in redemption history. We are literally in between the shining manifestation of the Son of God in His first coming when He died for our sins to redeem us and the brilliant, unmistakable second coming when He appears with terrible power and great glory that we've been reading about in Revelation to conquer His enemies of darkness and establish His kingdom. This ending of the book of Revelation that we're going to look at this morning fully appreciates this position of our living in between these two epiphanies. And as we finish our study of the book of Revelation, I would like us to really appreciate what we're doing right now in waiting for the Lord to come because that's what he's going to tell us about in these verses. He's finished this whole revelation and now he's going to yearn for the events and revelation to begin. So as we read these final verses of Revelation, I want you to pay attention to how many times the coming of the Lord is declared. Look at Revelation chapter, six, uh, chapter 22 then, verse 6. We'll read the whole section, although we're not going to get very far before we're done this morning. But starting in Revelation 22, verse 6, John has seen the visions of God's judgment of sin on the earth, the coming of the Lord to establish his kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth upon which the crown jewel, the new Jerusalem, the Lord's precious bride, the most holy place, the return to the better Eden is established. We've seen all of that. 
And now with this vision having come to a climax, here is what John says. He says, and he said to me, this angelic guide, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard, I saw them and saw them. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life, in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testified to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You notice again and again, like the continual pealing of a bell, the text proclaims the hope in the coming of Jesus. I am coming soon. The time is near. Come, come, come. I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, there are some strong parallels between the announcement of the Lord's first coming and the reassurance that we find in Revelation 22 that the Lord is coming again. You may have noticed as we read Revelation 22 just now that the promise of the Lord's coming is a matter of fulfilled prophecy, just like Jesus' first coming was a matter of fulfilled prophecy. And John's guide is an angel to help him interpret what he is seeing. Think about how many angels appear in the Christmas story to help people understand what is happening. But to me, the most striking parallel is the fact that just as there is yearning for the coming of the Lord in Revelation 22, there was a yearning for the Messiah's coming long before Jesus arrived in Bethlehem. We can discern Israel's longing for their promised king, if we read the Old Testament. 
but we can hear it loudly and clearly on the lips of Old Testament saints who speak of it. I'm thinking of one in particular, Elimelech, John the Baptist's father. He says something after John the Baptist is born, who would be the herald of the coming of Messiah. Elimelech, John the Baptist's father, fills his mouth with praise. And as we listen to his words, we can hear what Elimelech has been hoping for, longing for, based on the prophetic promises of God. When God allows him to speak, because remember he was made mute. When God allows him to speak the praise of God, Elimelech cries out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You can hear relief in this chant, this song. You can hear thanksgiving. Finally, after these years of waiting, after centuries of oppression, after years of serving under foreign kings, under Babylonian rule and Persian rule and Egyptian rule and Syrian rule and now Roman rule, after years of having to obey God in the fear of, of the presence of their enemies, after years of suffering persecution and sometimes torture and death because they would not disobey the Torah, the laws that God had given to them, finally, God is sending the deliverer. This is the day they have been yearning for. I don't know that we can appreciate what is going through a man's mind like Elimelech, realizing that the Christ is now coming. Now, how did believers think about the second coming of the Lord? At the, end of the, at the beginning of the second century. So this is how Elimelech is thinking, uh, thinking of the coming of the Lord at the beginning of the first century. How did believers in Christ who were in the church think about the coming of the Lord at the beginning of the second century in a remarkably similar way? If we look back at Revelation chapter 1, the opening verses of Revelation 1, some of you can't remember that far back when we went through this. John writes that this is the revelation, which is the uncovering, the revealing of truth about Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that's Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He, that's Jesus, made known this revelation by sending his angel to his servant, John. God the Father gives a revelation to Jesus. Jesus communicates the revelation to the angels who come to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony about Jesus Christ, even to all that saw. Why was revelation given to begin with? Because God wants to assure his servants, verse 1, 
that what has been promised about the coming of Jesus Christ to conquer and to reign is really going to come to pass. It's really happening. And this is great news for his servants because when we read uh, what John is going through in the exile and when we read in chapters 2 and 3 what most churches were going through because of persecution, they want to hear the words, it will soon take place. They were probably wondering, okay, Jesus said he was coming back. Why hasn't happened yet? Jesus wants to assure them it's going to happen. So when John continues in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Sometimes if you read that verse out of context, the time is near could be like a threat. It's not a threat. It's a glorious promise to troubled persecuted, frightened believers who might be tempted to think that the Lord has forgotten about them. So as soon as the vision is ended back in Revelation 22, verse 5, the angel speaking to John reiterates what we see at the opening of the book. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. It's very similar to what we just read in chapter one at the beginning of the book. And then Jesus himself speaks. You notice that Jesus does that a lot. There's no particular order in these last verses of revelations. Like John is speaking and explaining things and the angel says things, then Jesus jumps in. And says, I, and we know it's Jesus speaking because it says, I am coming and he's the one coming. So Jesus himself speaks. If you have, a, if you have a, the words of Christ in red in your Bible, you see these red bands through the last of the chapter where Jesus comes in and speaks. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And our response should be, yes, Lord, I'm so grateful. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But let's be really transparent with ourselves this morning. What do we really think about the Lord's coming? Because for many believers, the Lord's coming sounds like an amazing thing, and they're glad that they will be on his side when it happens. But if he came for them right now, if they had to be fully honest, it might seem ahead of time like kind of a disappointment because there are so many things we want to still do in this life. There are experiences we want to have. There are people we're close to. We have unfinished business. There are things we still want to enjoy. So when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, as amazing as all these prophecies are, John hears Jesus say, surely I am coming soon. And he echoes this hearty, amen, come Lord Jesus. And we're like, yay, you know, but, but it might not be with as much enthusiasm as John. Now, in a way, this is just foolishness on our part because it's impossible for us to imagine how better our lives are going to be when we are with the Lord. We, we, we can't long for it the way we should because we've never experienced it. We have no idea. It makes me, makes me think of that now famous observation that C.S. Lewis once made. He says that we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says we are far too easily pleased. 
But I think there is another reason it is difficult for many believers to work up joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because we don't feel like we need to be rescued from anything. We know the Lord. We're rescued from hell. When we die, most likely after our retirement, after we've lived a long life, after we've done the things we want to do, we're going to go be with the Lord. And we're all very glad for that. And really, it's a testimony to his blessings in our life that we think that way. But until then, there's no real reason to want to go anywhere. I mean, think about it. We have it pretty good here. We're comfortable. We have opportunities. No one's persecuting us. So we're like, you know, even so, come Lord Jesus, but, but there's no hurry, you know? If you want to wait a little longer, it's okay. I've got some things I need to do this week. I'm guessing that believers in Iran do not feel this way or believers in North Korea, or Afghanistan, or Somalia, or Pakistan, or Yemen. Now, does that mean we're bad for being in a country where there's less persecution, at least for now, where we can worship in relative freedom? No, it's a, it's a great blessing living in the United States for that reason. However, that means we have to be careful about things that people who lived in persecuted countries don't. We honor the Lord when we deeply and genuinely desire him to return, that's what he's yearning to do. That's what we need to yearn for also. So it would be good for us to grow in our hearts and minds with respect to our yearning for him to come. I think it's one of the ways we need to mature in our walk with the Lord. So this is very contextualized, the application for what we need to think about as an American audience, I'm going to suggest that we can grow in our yearning for his return as we understand and embrace several important aspects of Jesus coming that we see here in this passage. And I'll cover just the first this morning before we close and pick up uh, the rest next Lord's Day and, and maybe even one the next time, but all tying it to what we're thinking about right now, the coming of the Lord. What are these important aspects of Jesus coming that if we can appreciate them and embrace them and follow the implications of them will increase our understanding for his coming and increase our love for it, our yearning for it? Well, the first one is pretty simple. It's the certainty of his coming. The certainty of it. Do you know why we are not looking up all the time, thinking about the return of the Lord, watching for the return of the Lord, like 2 Peter tells us that we should be doing, for instance? It's because we haven't actively, consistently factored it into our lives. We just imagine we'll live and do this and that, and finally we'll die and go be with the Lord, and that's fantastic. We're, we're glad for that, but we don't think about his coming. Do you think when you begin your day or your week or, or even a, a new year that this may be it? This may be when the Lord will return and the timetable of events described in the book of Revelation will begin. Is that, our, is that a possibility in our future as we think about it? Notice what he says, starting in verse 6. I'm going to look at this, these verses a little more carefully. The main vision has ended, and the first thing the angel does is turn to John after verse 5 and say, these words are trustworthy and true. That's the first thing out of his mouth. He wants John to know everything you've seen here, everything you've been writing down, every, every vision, trustworthy and true. It's the regular Greek word for faithful and true. 
it means that what John has been seeing and hearing and writing down will certainly come to pass. But you don't have to take merely the angel's word for it as if one of the angels who poured out the final judgments on the earth before Christ's return isn't good enough. This angel, however, is actually repeating the words of God from earlier in the text. In the previous chapter, verse 5, we won't turn there, but the Lord says on his throne to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It's the same words he's using there. And back in Revelation 3.14, Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness using these Greek words. The Lord is behind all of this. This is his word. That's why John continues in verse 6, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. Here, the Lord Jesus is called the God of the spirits of the prophets. That is, when his prophets speak, it is God who speaks. The Lord has governed the entire experience that John has had in Revelation so that John, having been prepared by God for this task, will write down for our understanding everything God wants us to know about this. What John writes in Revelation is the very word of God. And not only that, notice that he says the Lord sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Don't let that little word must go by you with no meaning. All of these prophecies in Revelation that center on the Lord's coming, they must take place. The Lord isn't waiting to decide if and when to make good on his promise of of his coming based on how bad things sort of get for us in the world. He has already decreed his coming so that it must take place. God has bound himself to that promise or else he is a liar. His coming at any time is as real and certain as anything he has declared to be true. He must come. And not merely for our benefit, though he loves us and we will be greatly benefited by it. He is coming because he will be glorified in his coming and his word will be shown to be true. So Jesus himself says in verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see the word keep? The word keep here means we read these words. We believe these words. We count on these words. We factor them into our lives because we know they are certain. We sometimes wonder about God's promises or treat them nonchalantly simply because they haven't taken place yet. But if you want to see promises fulfilled regarding the coming of Christ, the epiphania, the appearance of Christ, just look at all the prophecies surrounding his first coming. We're going to hear several of them over the Christmas season. Jesus' lineage was stated in advance through the prophets that were governed by God, that Jesus would be of the family of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the very family of David. The place of his coming was predicted in advance in Bethlehem Ephrathah, Micah 5.2. There was more than one Bethlehem, just like there is more than one Greenville, 
just, as like, just like there's more than one traveler's rest. I hate to break it to you if you think traveler's rest is the only traveler's rest. There's actually one in Alabama and one in Georgia. I know those two anyway. Traveler's rest, not, not our travel. I think there's only one gateway Baptist of traveler's rest though, okay? But there's, there's, there's more than one traveler's rest. So not only did the prophecy narrow down the place name of Jesus as coming, it identified the exact spot, the exact location where the Messiah would come. And this birthplace was not manipulated by Mary and Joseph. The decree had gone out from Caesar that families had to register for the census. Luke tells us in his gospel uh, that Joseph had to go back to this place Jesus was born. Wasn't it an easy journey for Mary, who was almost a full term? You wouldn't have taken a trip at that point. But they had to go. This is what happens when God says something will happen. It must happen for his glory. In fact, so certain are the promises that we have been reading in Revelation, and so important is it that we know they are true, that right before the book ends, we have the sobering warning. In verses 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. You remember the plagues in Revelation? You do not want to take part in them. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, uh, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life that we just read about at the beginning of chapter 22. And in the holy city, which he's been describing in chapters 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem, which are described in this book. Now, our first reaction is to say, now, wait a minute. Does that mean if I accidentally add to this scripture or leave some of it out, I could lose my salvation? I mean, it it says he will take away his share in the tree of life and and of, of the holy city. Well, make sure you realize that these words, notice, are addressed to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. This is written as a warning to anyone who would want to deceive or marginalize what God has said, as if some of it is not going to happen. That's not something that a spirit-filled believer is going to want to do. However, I would not want to explain away the seriousness of this warning by just preaching up here, oh, don't worry about it. I, I think when you see warnings like this, that God's just trying to be dramatic or he's, he's, this is sort of a rhetorical flair. I think that when warnings like this are given by God in the scripture, we should let them stand as they are. I think they should perplex us. They should cause us to take what God says seriously. And he is saying to anyone who hears these words, you add to this prophecy something that is not true. I am adding these plagues to you. You will not go without judgment. You take away something from this prophecy, making it not fully true, then I will take something away from you and you will still go to judgment. This might sound harsh at first, but once again, the prophecy is so certain that the punishment fits the crime. This is the certainty of his coming. It could happen at any moment. There is no sign. You realize that, right? There's no sign we're waiting for. No fulfillment that has to take place before the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his church. It could happen today. The Lord bursting into our lives like a supernova, the rapture of the church, setting into motion everything revelation affirms. Are you ready for that to happen? 
today? Do you know the Lord? Are you walking with the Lord? Do you factor his coming into your thinking? You cannot begin to yearn for the Lord's coming until you believe in the Lord's coming. So let's pray, seriously pray, that God will be gracious to us and increase our faith in his soon return, that we may think rightly about the life he has given us to live in Christ and so bring honor and glory to him. Father, thank you.